There is a story on the internet, so you know it's true, uh, about a man who went on a fishing exhibition. And while he was fishing, he had a, a problem with the engine and got stuck in a storm, had a shipwreck. And as the tides took him out of the normal fishing lanes and shipping lanes, it pushed him to this deserted island. And he was there for, he doesn't really know, maybe a year and a half or so. And there was no other shipping lanes going past that island, so he was stuck. He had to figure out how to do life on his own. After about a, a year and a half or so, a, a large shipping company changed their route and ended up going past that island. And as he saw this large container ship coming by, he started a signal fire, got their attention, and, and as he was praying to God to save them, some, the, the ship saw, blew its horn, acknowledged they saw him, got in a dinghy, sent some of the crew over to find out what was going on. As they came on shore, he rushed to them and gave them big hugs and said, Thank you so much. I have been praying so hard that I would be saved. Uh, I, I can't believe you guys are here. And they said, how long have you been here? And he goes, I, the best I can guess, year and a half or so, I'm not really sure. He goes, well, how did you survive on this small little deserted island this whole time? He goes, well, let me show you. So he took him to a hut that was built up off the ground a little bit. And he goes, this is my home. And he had built a, 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 a place to sleep and a place to store food and a place to collect fresh water. And they're like, this is amazing. He goes, yes, but this isn't actually what carries me. My faith in Jesus carried me. Let me show you how I was able to trust God that someone would get me someday. They walk around the bay, go up a bit of a rise, and go to another hut. And he goes, this is my place of worship. This is my church. I come here every day, and I pray, and I spend time with God, and, 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 I, and I ask him to look after me and keep me safe. And they go, this is amazing. And they said, look, as you brought us to this hut, your church, we passed a third hut just around the corner coming here. What's that hut for? And he goes, oh, that's my old church. That wasn't really working for me, so I left that one in. I went to this one. <laughs> See, we laugh because it's true, right? That's why. It's, it's just a little close to the bone. How often do we look uh, at church in that kind of way? If it meets my needs, if it's got my kind of people, if it makes me feel good, if it agrees with me, uh, if I like the music, I'll make it my church up until when a better option might come along. See, we live in a society now that shops for church the way we shop for a movie theater. If it has uh, good seats and the seats are comfortable and the show is good, I'll go. Otherwise, I'll drive across town to try out that new theater that's just opened up. Or even better, I'll just stay home and I'll watch a few shows on net church flicks. That would be just fine. It's time to change the conversation. Last thing we need to do right now is talk about church. Uh, the real and only issue here is actually about God and how we relate to God, and how we follow Him. So we're starting this new series. It's called Relook. We're going to look at the who, and the what, and the why, and the how of church. But this is why. My prayer. My prayer is that we here at Ham Central, uh, are, that God will remind us why we're here, why Ham Central's always been here, and why He has brought us now, specifically us, together, whether we're on site or at home online, and, and see how he creates a new life around this, uh, a new vigor, a new energy around what God has in store for us as we do this life together. But the first step in doing that is that we need to re-understand God. We need to understand who God is and what his church is supposed to be and what his church is supposed to be on about. Now, a quick little warning, a little spoiler warning, spoiler alert. Um, there are a point a couple times this morning where you might begin to wonder, is Brian kind of anti-church? I'm not. I'm not. I love God's church because I love God's people. I don't like what happens sometimes within this church thing we call church. 
So I think it's time for us to be called back by God to what he wants us to be. And therefore, we're going to change the way we look at him, the way we look at each other, the way we look at our neighbors, and see what it means to be church together. So the first step, we got to look at God differently. See, God is not untouchable. He's not up in heaven somewhere calling us up to Zion. We don't buy into the nonsense that says God can only be found at Saint Whoever Church. And we don't use phrases like God really showed up today, assuming and applying that he doesn't always show up. See, all the way through the Bible, um, from the first page to the very end, we discover God. He doesn't separate himself from us. He doesn't make himself hard to find. Instead, he pursues. He moves outward towards us, propelling himself into the lives of others, the people he loves, into all of the universe that he created. See, from the very beginning of time, stories of creation are about stories of God the missionary. A God who sends out his word into the chaos and orders things and the world is created. The very act of creation is God the missionary sending himself forth. All through the history of Israel, we have a God who is always chasing after people, always seeking after his people, always following after people, always moving forward into the lives of his people. In the Garden of Eden, starts right there. He infuses Adam and Eve with his ruach, his ruach breath, and, and sends it forth that they might mirror his image because they are made in his image. Even after they've messed up and they're fallen and they disobey God and they're cast out of Eden, he doesn't say, okay, that didn't work. Let's try this again. Instead, he follows after them. See, the history of Israel is a history of God's constant sentness. Even after people continually ignore him, disappoint him, or betray him, he always goes after them. That's our God. See, God is, he's not a temple God. He's not confined to church buildings and certain services and certain pastors or certain musos and music mixes. He's, he's not a God that we just read about and learn about and memorize stuff about. See, the Israelites don't fully understand that. They don't fully understand Yahweh until they are dragged out of their temple, dragged out of their nation, and placed in slavery, in exile, in Babylon. And as dreadful as it was to be dragged out of their home and dragged out of their temple and placed in slavery in Babylon, it was there that they discovered something they never would have discovered if they stayed in their same comfortable, safe seats in the temples back in Israel. They discovered that God is not only in Zion, that God was even in Babylon, even in that bad neighborhood. And they tell stories that God is in Nineveh, that he's found at the very depths of the ocean. Story after story after story that while in exile, God of Israel doesn't live in a temple. He doesn't uh, live in a mountain somewhere in Israel, but that our God, the sent God, moves outward constantly going after people all the time. And all through the Bible, we have a record of God in search of humanity, a record of God in search of you, a record of God in search of me. And the best, most loving, most personal example of this is God the Father sends his Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem a lost world. And then God the Father and God the Son sends the Holy Spirit 
to help and walk alongside us. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't complete the cycle there. Instead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they do what? They send us. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. The term that we use in the theological world for this, to describe this, is called the missio dei. Right, the Missio Day. Lots of people kind of make some mistakes on how this is translated. Um, it often gets translated as the mission of God. That's not what it means. Uh, missio Day is more about uh, kind of describing the essence of God, the, the very nature, the very character of God himself. A better translation is a missioning God. A God of mission is what this means. David Bosch, a, a missiologist, an author, he says, you cannot fully appreciate or fully understand the character of our living God unless you see him through the paradigm, the lens of mission. You get it? See where this is going? I've noticed a very interesting pattern in, in church going that I have people tell me all the time that, man, God is so present in our church. God is so active in our church because well, we had to start another church service. We had to start a second service because we were getting so big. Or because our worship is so spirit-led and spirit-full. Or people in our church are being baptized in the spirit of God and have words of knowledge and can speak in tongues and have visions and images. But you know what the reality is? If you tell me that you are filled with the spirit of God, if you tell me that our church is filled with the spirit of God, the single most fundamental measurement, KPI, indication of that reality is that you personally are driven into the lives of your neighbors, that we as a church are driven into the lives of each other to show love and care to one another and driven into the lives of our city to those who do not yet know him. We can have 777 church services on a Sunday for all I care. We can sing with our hands in the air for two hours and never get tired. There's a miracle. We could speak in tongues until the cows come home or listen and understand what the cows are saying. We can get visions of the next lotto numbers for all that matter. It doesn't matter because if God is the missio day, if God is the sent one, how can we not show what it really looks like and be propelled into the world and into the lives of those who do not yet know Jesus? See, God doesn't live on, in that church on the other side of town or any other church for that matter. And every time we say welcome to the house of God or start to think that there's something special about this building or this place or, or that pastor or that worship band, it's an utter mockery. We are making an utter mockery of everything the Jews hoped for in the Messiah and all that Jesus accomplished on the cross and sent the Holy Spirit to continue. See, at the point in which Jesus dies, gives up his spirit in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, remember what happens? Remember what happens? There's that magnificent, huge separating curtain, and it gets ripped in half. And now the temple of the living God is not a temple in Jerusalem, it's not a cathedral. It's not some renovated warehouse or cafe somewhere. The temple of the living God is where? It's here. It's in us. It's in you. It's in me. This frail, despicable, slightly chubby, aging, grain temple of the Missio Dei. Right here. See, the Israelites had to figure that out. 
They had to figure out this about God in order to just survive. Dragged from their homes, dragged out of their temples and living in exile, not being allowed to go back. They had to figure out how do we follow God in this unknown environment? The Israelites, they lived as slaves, right? They're slaves in a foreign land. And in the spirit of foreboding, the psalmist writes in 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs, songs of joy. And they said, sing us songs of Zion. How? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And in that spirit of despair, where they're longing for the good old days, they have no idea what's going to, and everything's falling apart. The prophet Jeremiah shows up, and he speaks this very encouraging word. Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, the people of God, they're captives. They're slaves in Babylon. And while they were there, God's telling them, don't grow homesick for Jerusalem. Don't sit around pining and hoping for the good old days. But now, as aliens and as strangers, the whole point of Israel's being called as a set-apart people, they started to get it. It became clear. They're to be sprinkled like salt throughout the world. They're supposed to be a, a light in the darkness, blessing and adding value to wherever they reside, with homes and gardens and children and offering peace to the surroundings. See, here's the point. This is the point of all this. The life-giving uniqueness of the church is not about the church, but for the sake of everybody else, for the sake of the whole creation, for the cities and the neighborhoods that we find ourselves in. See, church is not all about me. Church is not all about you. It's about each other. It's about others, neighbors and strangers. And it's not about just offering a better club to join, a nicer, more spruced up club to join, a better, more efficient, more fun, more welcoming organization to become a member of. Now, we're being asked by God for something bigger than that to join his son Jesus in building a whole nother society, offering the world a whole nother different, strange, upside down, life-giving, different from the rest of the world, empire and kingdom to which to belong. See, Jesus proclaimed in the gospel of Matthew, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's called good news. It's called gospel. And we're to live in a way that is good news to other people. See, up there has come down here. God is the boss up there, and now he's the boss down here, and he wants things run in a certain way. He wants us to live in a certain way. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are salt and light for everybody else. 
We are to move in and influence as an alternative community, visibly demonstrating the values of Jesus and the values of the kingdom of God through love and kindness and grace and, and generosity and tenacious support and inclusion of those that are lonely and ignored and oppressed. And once we get our head around that, now we can ask the question, well, what about church? Now we can ask, what is the church? Now, in the theological world, the term for church is called ecclesia. Right? Ecclesia. It means to be called out. It comes from two words, ek meaning out, and kaleo meaning called. We are called out. Now, let me tell you why this is an important word for us. It's not a Christian word. Not at all. In fact, it was a term that was already being used back in Jesus' day, back in Paul's day. And Paul picks it up. And he says, this word pretty much does the job in describing what followers of Jesus are supposed to be like. See, ecclesia was a term described, uh, to describe a meeting that took place in the ancient Near East. Back in Jesus' day, back in Paul's day, whenever a village got big enough that it had to protect its own, big enough where it had to protect its kids, big enough where it had to protect its livestock and keep them safe, they would build a wall around that village. But it wasn't a big stone wall. They would go find brush and tumbleweeds and stuff and just kind of stack it in a circle around their village. And, and that was to keep the kids in, keep the kids safe, to keep the livestock and the animals in at night. And then they would leave a little opening in that brush fence uh, into that village, and they called that opening the city gate. All right, sounds huge, the city gate. So when guys got older, when men got older, when men, uh, their kids are getting in their early 20s, these guys were 40 to 45, what they would do is their whole life had been about teaching their kids their craft. And, and as they got older, they would take their sons and they would get their kids into the business and learn the business as soon as they could walk. So let's say I owned a carpentry shop. Let's say I was a carpenter by trade. As soon as my son could like stand himself and sit up and balance, I would take him into the shop and I'd have a pile of sawdust and I would sit him right there in the sawdust. And I'd watch him fall into the sawdust and get up and get the sawdust all up in his face and nose and stuff, getting used to the environment. As he got older, I would give him my tools to play with, not the sharp ones. I'm a loving father, but I would give him the blunt tools and he would learn to play with these tools and then he would grow up learning the craft. And as soon as he was getting around 20 or so, I would take off my tool belt, give it to my son and say, son, the business is yours. All this is yours. I'm retiring. I'm like 40 it's time for me to take a break. It's been a hard life. And so I'm now semi-retired. If you get a big order, give me a call. I'll come help. You got, need some advice? Let me know. I'll come and coach you through it. But the business is yours. Now, what does a 40-something-year-old do that's retired in Israel at this point in history? What do you do? Do you join the country club and play golf? No. The golf courses were awful. All sand traps. No fairways. So, so what do you do in the Near East? What they would do is as these guys were getting older and there was gray in their beard, they would all go down to the city gate and they would sit and they would eat and they would talk. But they wouldn't just talk about the good old days. They wouldn't just pass the time telling jokes or telling lies about their glory days in the kaputz rugby club. Instead, they functioned a very, very specific function in that village. Whenever there was a problem, 
Whenever there was a conflict in the village, whenever there was an ethical dilemma, whenever the village had to struggle or, or it was facing a challenge it didn't know how to handle, you would walk down to the city gate. You would come to where all the elders were sitting there and you would squat in the dirt and you would kind of play in the dirt and listen for a while. And when they stopped telling their jokes, you would say, hey, fathers of mine. Because remember, this is their fathers, their grandfathers, their uncles. They said, there's a problem. There's a problem in the village. And the elders would go, oh, tell us, tell us. We've run out of things to talk about. What, what's going on? And they said, well, there are riots. There are riots and there's protesting down at the palace about circumcision mandates. And by people who don't agree with the circumcision passes that you need to carry to get into temple and get into Passover cafes. And we don't know what to do. Or they would say, the prices of food and cloth and straw for the camels so that we can, we can drive and go places, it's going up every week. Inflation is outrageous, and Jerusalem is doing nothing about it. What can we do? Or they would say, there's flooding. There's flooding in the plains, and people are losing their homes and, and their, their fields for livestock, and we don't know how to help. Or there are two sons, and they're fighting over their inheritance of their father. See, whatever it was, whatever the problem was, you would go to the gate, you would bring it to the elders, and the elders would scratch at their beards and they would reflect on what might be done. See, there's a story in the gospel, Gospel of Luke, where a man comes to Jesus and tries to treat him like an elder. And he says, look, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus basically says, it's not my problem. Who made me judge over you? He's saying, I'm not your elder. I don't live in your village. Go to your village with your people. You have all the solution right where the people are that I've gathered you around. And then he turned to the crowd and he would tell a story like Jesus always does in situations like this. The story's in Luke 12, starting at verse 13, if you want to open up or find it on your phone. Verse 12, starting at verse 13. See, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable, a story. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I don't have any place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Now, the crowd listening to the story, when they listened to this, there was a point where they would have gone, <gasps> and they would have leaned in because they knew exactly what was wrong about this story. See, when a man has a bumper crop, when he has more money than he knows what to do with it, the first thing he would do is what? He would walk to the city gate, and he would sit down, and he would say, fathers of mine. And he would start laughing. I've got more money than I know what to do with. I got so much. Honestly, I got so much money. What should I do? 
That's what he would do. And they would go, slow down, slow down. This is a big problem. I wish I had your problem, they said. Let's give some thought to this. Come back in a few hours. So he would go away, and he would come back. And they would say something like, well, have you given a percentage of it to the poor? And he's like, oh, good, yeah, good. Give some to the poor, okay? Make a few donations. Good, good. Um, have you given some to the priest to maintain our faith practices? Oh, yeah, yeah, give some to the temple. That's a good idea. Give some to the temple. Well, when one is blessed, they would say, we're all blessed. Have you held a fantastic feast for the whole village to attend and celebrate in, in your good fortune? Oh, throw a party. Great idea. I'll throw a big party. Good. So he takes it. He takes his list. He runs off and gets it all done. But because we're told he's got a bumper crop, he can't even store it all, he would come back and he would say, Fathers of mine, I still have more money than I know what to do with. And they would say, well, what have you done with what we told you? Have you given some money to the poor? And he says, yeah, heaps, helped a lot of people, made a number of donations. Um, well, good, good. Have you given some to the priest? Oh, I did. I gave some to the priest, and the temple is now going to build a cafe and a gym for the youth group and the youth ministry. It's really good. It's really wonderful. Oh, good, good. Well, did you throw a party? And, and the guy goes, I pull, did I throw a party? Of course I threw a party. Don't, you were there. Don't you remember? And they go, oh, that's right. It's a little bit fuzzy. I remember that was a really good party. I remember now. And then they might say, well, then I think what you ought to do is just Build bigger barns so you can live a life that's easier and eat, drink, and, and be merry. So what's the problem then? What's, what was the man's sin in the story that Jesus told? Is doing well in business a sin? No. Is having more money than you know what to do with it? No, that's not a sin. What is it? It's when he said, I know. When he simply decided for himself on what he would do. When he says, I know what I will do. See where this is gone? You get it? See, the word used to describe the elders at the gate is ecclesia. That's where we get that word from, ecclesia. What does a gathering of elders at the gate do for a village? What contribution do they make to society? And this is what's so important. The image and the term that Paul chose to describe what followers of Jesus would be like is a term about a group of people who are given the expressed purpose, the expressed mission of adding value to the village of which they are a part. It's a better village because of those elders, because of that ecclesia. It's a better town than it could ever be without the presence of those wise good, loving, generous, ecclesia, older men. See, in Paul's understanding, followers of Jesus would be a gift to the community of which they are a part, to those who don't know Jesus and to those who are following Jesus together. See, as followers of Jesus, we are to add wisdom and beauty, and honesty, and help, and health, and common good for everybody. We're to be salt and light to the world. See, if you could somehow cruelly sneak into that village at about four in the afternoon when people are feeling a bit sluggish, and, and go kidnap the elders sitting at that gate, that community would mourn. They would grieve, and they wouldn't only grieve and mourn the loss of those good men, their fathers and grandfathers and uncles that they love. That whole village would grieve because they do not know how to be a decent, kind village 
without the influence of that ecclesia. That's challenging. See, right here at Ham Central, if Ham Central was taken away from Ulster Street and Charlemont Street, if Ham Central was taken away from Hamilton, if Ham Central was taken away from you, would you or anybody else even notice? Would you or anybody else even care? See, is there anybody in Hamilton giving thanks that you are here? Is there thankful people around you, right where you live in your neighborhood, they are so thankful that you're their neighbor? See, you might not think we are there right now as a church, but hang on to the hope that that has always been God's plan of what we will be. Don't hang on to the hope that we'll have the best youth ministry or children's ministry or seniors ministry or community ministry or music ministry or preaching ministry. Don't. Hang on to the hope that one day this neighborhood, this city would grieve if you were taken away. See, as followers of Jesus, we are God's gift to the people around you. Do people around you know that? Would people around you say that? Do you look at your, we have a big pastoral team here. Do you look at your pastors? Do you look at your elders? Do you look at our ministry leaders? Do you look at the people in your life groups? Do you look at the people sitting next to you right now at your table or your rows or sitting with you right now at home watching this online? Do you look at them and say, you are gifts from God to me? A woman was um, late to a Bible study. She was off to a Bible study at her church. And as she was watching her, her watch and driving, driving really late, she gets to the red light and there's a car in front of her. The turn, light turns red. She's waiting, 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 waiting. And then the light turns green. And when it goes green, the car in front of her doesn't go ahead. Instead, she notices through the window, it's this young punk kid on his phone. He's looking at his phone. He's not even paying attention. So she honks. He doesn't move. So she honks again. She doesn't move. So then she sits on the honk and doesn't like it. And she starts wagging her hand at him and honking, 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 and throwing her fist at the window. Starts throwing the fingers up in the air. And she starts talking like a sailor. And she's swearing him out. Get out of the way. I got to go. Get, get out. Why are you, you stupid idiot? You know how? And during that time, all of a sudden, she sees some flashing red lights in her rearview mirror. And, and she hears this whoop, whoop, whoop. And she stops and goes quiet and turns around. And a police officer walks up to her window, knocks on the window. She rolls down the window and says, ma'am, can you give me your license and the car registration? So she, he takes the license and the car registration and goes, oh, this is your car? And she goes, yeah. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I just assumed. I saw your behavior and the way you were swearing out the guy in front of you and giving the guy fingers. And on the back of your car, you've got an alpha sticker and a Jesus is the only way sticker and a central church sticker. And I just assumed the car was stolen. Yeah. See, sometimes there's stuff that happens in life that makes us kind of act like that woman. And we look at people like a problem. We look at people as someone to get out of the way or, or a project to fix. And somehow we've been sucked out of the lives of each other and we get sucked out of the lives of our neighbors. And we don't play with each other anymore. We don't laugh with each other anymore. We don't um, have barbecues and have people over for dinners anymore, let alone add wisdom and grace and peace and, and hope to your neighbors and to those who don't know Jesus and to each other. What's Jesus doing amongst us? 
What's he doing in your neighborhood? What's he doing in our church? What's he do, doing in Hamilton? How is Jesus adding life to the people that you're sitting with right now, here or at home? How is grace and mercy and peace and love, how is that emerging in your house and in your neighborhood and in our church? See, our job as God's sent ones, as an ecclesia, is to tease that out, to stoke that fire, to build that, to focus on that, to engage it, to give life to that and not anything else. We're being told by Jesus to go, go. Go where I send you. Go and find him where he is already serving others. Go add love and life to your neighbor and your neighborhoods and to one another where Jesus is already doing that now. See, if your faith in Jesus has helped you look at yourself the way God looks at you, that's great. If, if your faith in Jesus has helped you to forgive yourself and, and you have accepted the forgiveness that God has given you through his son, that's, that's good. If, if your faith in Jesus has helped you deal with issues, anger issues or self-image issues or relationship issues or, or addiction issues, that's, that's a good thing. If, if your faith in Jesus Christ has helped you become a good person, a, a good friend, a good spouse, a, a good boss, a good employee, well, that's good. If, if your faith in Jesus has made you want to be part of a church that has biblical preaching and spirit-led worship and, and transformational ministry and discipleship for all ages and genders and, and ethnicities, that's, that's good. It's not good enough. It is nothing to give our lives to. It is nothing to give our energy and our finances to. See, following Jesus without joining him in our streets, in our neighborhoods, and in our neighbors' lives, it's like Christianity without a cross. See, following Jesus without going with him amongst those that are forgotten and lonely and ignored, hopeless, hungry, poor, that's a religion. That's a club. It's not a relationship with an adoring Savior following him in, in our adoration as our Lord and Savior into the very lives that he's showing love and life and, and hope to. See, the cross is where Jesus took it, literally took it upon himself, all the suffering and all the pain of the world, and redeemed it and conquered it and triumphed it and, and changed it, transformed it. And we can encounter that activity still today. We can encounter the cross today. But to do that, we have to embrace the loneliness and the suffering and the pain of the world and of our neighbors, of one another. See, that's where Jesus is standing right now, ready to redeem and change and heal the suffering and the pain, waiting to welcome all of us to join him there. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he, he writes about this. He says, while women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl on the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. See, the world's looking for fighters. The, the world is waiting to see, does anybody practically care? Will anybody just show up? There's people in our church, our church family, waiting to see, will anybody practically care? Will anybody just show up 
and even notice that I'm not around. Are you available? Will you go to them? See, our purpose as Christ followers is just real simple. Love God, love everybody else. Pretty simple job description. That's ecclesia. That's church. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that because of your son Jesus, because of what he did for you and for us on the cross to, to save us from our sins, to die and rise again and, and allow us to join you for eternity in heaven. And all we got to do is accept that gift of life, accept his leadership in our life. I want to thank you that you don't call us then to be part of something boring. You don't call us to be part of a club that just either serves my needs or I'm out. Instead, you call us to an adventure, to a life of fighting for those that need help, a life of seeing life change in our neighbors' lives, in our families' lives, in our children's lives, in one another's lives, in our city's lives, a life that as we simply join you in showing your love to others, practically, by our presence, you change things and you, you, you change lives. And you transform things because your kingdom's already here. Help us to join you right where you are. Help us to be people to walk around with eyes wide open, to see you in the life of each other, to see you in the life of our neighbors, and to simply go and be sent as God sent you to point other people to you who love them first. In Jesus' name, amen.